0: Then the Apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called the Sabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord You know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Thanks Phil. Good morning.
1: Let's pray. Our God and King, we come to you this morning asking that you might speak to us. That you might help us to understand this part of your word That you might instruct us and shape us That you might mould us so that we might be those who walk more faithfully In light of all that you have done And we pray this for the glory of Jesus Amen Uh, I think you can find out a lot about yourself And a lot about other people by how they deal with waiting Uh, I used to think I was pretty good at waiting until I actually had to wait. Uh, It's one of those things like patience where you kind of go, oh, yep, I'm reasonably patient, and then you find yourself kind of waiting in the line for fish and chips, and you're just like, how long does it take? Like you're kind of counting down, you find yourself getting disgruntled and hangry, and you realise you're far more sinful and far less patient than you really thought, all in a fish and chip shop. Uh, And you find out a lot about how people wait. And today uh, our passage kind of falls in this awkward kind of 10-day waiting window. Jesus has uh, told the disciples, uh, here's your mission to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses there. That's the first part of chapter 1. He says, but wait. You need to wait. I want you to wait in Jerusalem for my spirit. That I'm sending one who will come in and dwell in you, who will work in you, who will then equip and empower you to do those things that otherwise you would be unable to do. And that is the only thing that gives us hope as well. And so they walk. What we're told in verse 12 is a Sabbath day's walk. If you're not sure how far a Sabbath day's walk is, it's about 50 cubits. I hope that's helpful. It's actually about one kilometer. So they walk back one kilometer and they go up to this upper room. And if you're thinking an upper room like maybe the upstairs of your house, think again, because we're told that there's actually about 120 people in this upper room. So that's a big room. It's a big room, or they're squeezed in tighter than a 15-year-old's jeans in the early 2000s. It's a niche cultural reference there. They are gathered together, but what is it that they are doing? They are gathered together together, not just physically, but we are told that they are of one accord; that they are united in what they are to do, and they are united in praying. That so they're praying and praying and praying, and I don't, I don't mean doesn't blame them, right? You've just seen Jesus go up to heaven. You've just been told, okay, you're going to take on now the Roman Empire, not just that, but your own people, the own homeland, and you're going to tell them what it is that I have done, you're going to tell them that they have crucified the Messiah. And you're going to see nations change. And so they pray and pray and pray. And wait, as they have been told. I was listening to uh, a podcast called uh, "Fight, Hustle, and Hurry." E N D and Hurry. Uh, here we are, uh, and they um, uh, reflect on this story from Martin, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s biographies. Autobiograph- no, biographies. Always get that mixed up. And uh, they tell this. The author tells this story about when Martin Luther King he had just received kind of a fresh an increase in death threats against his family. This is before his I Have a Dream speech. Um, His daughters specifically had received death threats at school. I don't know about you, but that would be kind of one of the times where you're kind of going, okay, do I just kind of start to downplay? Do I stop being such a big, bold public figure here? Do I kind of quieten down just a little bit? And he just had a rock thrown through their family living room's window. And he's in his kitchen at 2am and he is in this moment of silence just praying. And the author says that that in that moment Martin Luther King heard something of a small, quiet voice that said, Keep going. Keep going. Here is the plan I have for you. And the, the podcast host wonder in a moment. It's just a throwaway line, but they, he says, I sometimes wonder even now, he said, What would have happened? How would history have been different if Martin Luther King had an iPhone? And they kind of laugh about it, and then he says, because you know what I would be doing? You know what Martin Luther King would probably be doing at 2 a.m.? If he had that kind of day at 2 a.m. in, in the kitchen on an iPhone, he'd just be mindlessly scrolling through TikTok, Instagram, Facebook reels, people getting hurt, right? Like, Just like mindless scrolling rather than quiet praying. Now I don't want to make a bigger deal out of this than we ought, but so often the enemy of prayer is less evil things and more my phone. Um I I had uh I forget whether I've shared this, but I had a moment of realisation a little while ago where I, I love to listen to audiobooks. Uh, it's what I listen to in the car often, podcasts or audiobooks while driving. And I had this moment where I realised, you know what I used to do while driving? Pray a lot more. Now, audiobooks are great. Podcasts are, are sensational. I can use them in sermons. Uh, but I used to pray a lot more. And here the disciples are gathered, not just the disciples, but Jesus' own family, and about 120 in total, and they are praying and pleading with the Lord. In verse 15 we're told that, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who has served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Here's what Peter is reflecting on, that Judas was one of us. That Judas walked with us, shared food with us, heard some of the greatest sermons the world has ever heard. He was involved in mystery. He saw the paralytic get up, pick up his mat and walk. That Judas was in the boat when we thought we were going to drown and the wind and the waves were throwing us back and forth and the voice that spoke creation into being was heard once more and that the wind and the waves recognized the voice of their creator and stilled. And Judas was there. He was there and he had his feet washed in those final moments by Jesus And still he traded it all He traded it all, he threw it away For the pleasures of money And there is a, a warning here, right? You can be incredibly close to Jesus. You can be under the greatest preacher the world has ever known. And yet, you can trade it all for the pleasures of a heavier purse at the bait. Of a fuller stomach, of a bigger house, of better clothing. And where, where did this lead him? Verse 18. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Now, in uh, caveat here, in Matthew 27, we're also told that Judas hung himself in this same field. And so, some people go, "Oh, there's a contradiction here." Actually, what seems to be on view is actually he is incredibly isolated, right? One, that's just where sin leads you to. He is incredibly isolated. We're told that by him buying his own field, and so it is a long time before he is even found. And in that time, what seems to be on view is what's happened is his body has bloated and the rope has kind of decayed and he has fell headlong and his body has burst open and his intestines have spilled out. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, I don't have slides for that one. And all the while, Peter stands up. Peter stands up, verse 15, we're told, he stood up among the believers. And I think what Luke is doing here is there is an intentional contrast between what happens to Peter and what happened to Judas because in many ways they're not dissimilar in that both betray Jesus both abandon Jesus that um, in Je- when Jesus needed the most in his trial uh that Peter denied Jesus 3 times In fact, if you read Luke's gospel, Jesus has a a bag over his head. He's kind of blindfolded, if you can imagine, a a bag put over your head and he is hit and struck and he's kind of like thrown about, like just in the crowd as people are striking him and he can't see where the next hit's coming from. And meanwhile, Peter is watching and, and a young girl says to him, no, aren't you one who was with him? And and Peter's like looking at Jesus, like hearing the girl, but just looking at Jesus in Luke's gospel. And he says, he starts calling down curses on himself. And he says, curse be me if I'm lying. I do not know this man. And in Luke's gospel, the rooster crows and the bag is torn off Jesus's head and Jesus's eyes and Peter's eyes meet. There's a poem actually that just kind of reflects on what was in that glance, what was in that moment, what would it have been like to meet eyes with Jesus just after you have denied him in that moment. And so there is an intentional contrast here between what happens to Peter and what happens to Judas. You see, Peter despite his shortcomings, despite his betrayals, despite his failures, he doesn't deny them. He doesn't downplay them. He doesn't even try to cover them up or minimise them. But interestingly, neither does Peter kind of devolve into self-pity. Peter doesn't kind of Just spiral down into this, woe is me and despair. Peter is not ruled by his guilt. He isn't crippled by his guilt. In what should be an incredibly intriguing thing. How is it that he can stand up and speak with boldness after what he has done? How is it that he casts that off his shoulders? You see, Judas Judas seems to withdraw. He does not press into community, but withdraws and spirals into guilt and self-pity. He never journeys from conviction to confession. And if you are someone who, uh, thinks guilt is purely, uh, a religious kind of poison from the religious tree, uh, you should, uh, go and watch. There's a, a paramedic who does a TED talk by the name of, uh, Matthew O'Reilly. And he kind of talks about his vast experience being a paramedic and, um, And being with people in those final moments. So that's what this TED talks about. What is it that people in their final moments reflect on? And I don't know whether he's religious or not. He doesn't allude to anything. But here's what he does say. In his many, many years seeing people in their last breaths, he says there are three things that people have all reached out for. He says people want to be remembered. They they ask to be remembered. They long to be remembered. There is a felt need for their family or children to remember them. He says they want to know that their life had meaning, that they have made a difference, that it has mattered them being here. And then he says that regardless of culture, Regardless of religious belief or backgrounds, there is a need, a request for forgiveness. That there is a guilt that they have all felt that they seek forgiveness for, atonement for. And here we see Peter Peter going from conviction to confession to now restoration. Whereas Judas has found himself in conviction but never goes to confession. And so he drowns. In uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great work, Life Together, it's it's about this big, if you're interested. Great read, Life Together. Uh, The first chapter is a little bit dense, but it's it's about this big. So, Um, In it, he says this, he says, uh, Never do I feel the weight of my sin so much as when I confess it to a brother or sister. And then he says, but never do I feel the hope and the freedom of the gospel as when that that brother or sister then speaks life and the truth of the gospel to me. Reminding me that that sin is no longer mine to carry. That it has been nailed to the cross. that there is no, I'll do better, I'll try harder, nor is there freedom in woe is me, but freedom is found in confession. And in confession, we see in John 21, restoration for Peter. In our passage, Peter uh, Luke then goes on, and Peter goes on to give us not just a sober warning, nor just a comparison of guilt and restoration, but he goes on to give us a reminder, a reminder about God's sovereignty, that this was always part of God's plan, that this isn't um, plan B. This is plan A still. He says, verse 16, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago. For Pete, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of the Psalms. This has been spoken about before. That this isn't somehow God's plan has gone astray. That the worst thing to ever happen in human history. The greatest evil ever to come about. The greatest injustice. has all been part of God's plan to, to bring about the greatest good the world would ever know. That even this, even the greatest of evils does not surprise God, nor has it usurped his plan. It doesn't all outside of his control. And this is why the disciples are able to then go, this is why this 120 are able to then go into uh, Colosseums. This is why they are able to speak boldly in front of angry crowds. This is why they are able to sell their houses to see the gospel go further. This is why they are able to grieve and yet rejoice when friends are lost, either by abandonment or by martyrdom. That even the worst things in human history still fall within hands that died for us. That bled for us That he is in complete control Never surprised And that doesn't make um, It doesn't make cancer better It doesn't make evil and injustice Just not painful anymore But it does mean that he can be trusted for he is not surprised, and yet it is not meaningless. He, as the children's song goes, he has the whole world in his hands. It's about to sing it. No, no, don't because you'll clip that and you'll put that on Facebook, and we'll go viral for all the wrong reasons. That he has the whole world in his hands. Even the terrible things when you try and you try month after month and the test is still negative. When you're sitting across from the doctor and he says it's not good news. And when you say goodbye to your mother for the last time. when you say goodbye to your dad who has dementia for seemingly the hundredth time. The whole world is in his hands. Hands that bled for us. And so, and so they choose new leadership. The disciples appoint, point that, a new apostle, they recognize it is important to be 12. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men that have been with us the whole time. Why is it necessary? It's necessary because uh, in the Old Testament, the people of God started with the 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Peter recognizes is a new era is starting. This is the beginning of a new era, a new people of God, a new Israel, if you will. And so he seeks to find to fill Judas's place, that there might be twelve once more. And notice the importance, the the qualification to be one of the twelve is that they must have been with them the whole time, witnessing all that Jesus did when he lived among them, from the beginning of the baptism to when he ascended. Because it's, Jesus is not just a nice idea, but a person in history. A person in history to be testified about. And we'll see the birth of this new era, this new Israel, the new people of God, next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we might be those who wait well, who depend well upon you, who look ahead well, and so walk faithfully here and now. Walk faithfully when we drop the ball When we um, stuff up, when we fall short and sin We might be like Peter who Who then presses into community Presses into confession And so finds restoration And we pray that we might be those who Make much of the Lord Jesus in all we do this week, we pray. Amen.